Welcome to The Spiritual Hustle. Uh, the Hustle is co-hosted by Justin Sabinski and myself, Anthony Filipovich. And this week, uh, we're happy to have Aaron Law on board, the empowered farmer who's third generation egg farmer from uh, New Brunswick. And uh, you feed 30,000 people a day, which is incredible to me. Um, I want to get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but you also, when you're not farming, you um, give uh, personal empowerment talks. Uh, so there's a lot of things I wanted to talk about, but I thought maybe where we start is about your journey moving through the three years of fear and indecision uh, before you decided to buy the family farm, right? That, that would be an interesting journey. In some ways, like it, it, to me, it's like a no-brainer, but in other ways, I guess there's a lot of anxiety associated with that, right? In regards to cutting your own path through life and whatever. But tell us about it. Sure, Anthony. Uh, both you and Justin, thank you for the invitation to to just have a great chat with you guys here today. Yeah, and listeners. To it. So, yeah, I'll go into my story. Um, I grew up on a farm, and so did my parents. And I left uh, the farm, you know, to go to college and all that. My my parents encouraged me and my my other sibling, my younger brother, to go find our own path. You know, we, we were not uh, sequestered to the farm and told that that was our only option in life, you know, right. for, for work. So we explored our own paths and, and I did, and that turned into uh, the engineering uh, profession. And I worked in that field for 11 years and then there was an opportunity to come back to the farm. And uh, essentially, you know, I, I wasn't being fulfilled or like I was making the difference that I wanted to in engineering. So I left and uh, I came back to the farm and the opportunity was there because my parents were looking at retiring and um, my younger brother wasn't interested in the farming. So if I hadn't have come back, they probably would have sold the business outside of the family, um, which is fine. I didn't come back to to prevent the family business from ending, uh, you know, with, with their generation. Right. That was the motivation by my decision. But I came back with the intent to learn all parts of the business again, because I've been away from it for a number of years. And I said to myself, I made the goal that six months to a year, within six months to a year, I'm going to make the decision if I will buy the farm or if I will not buy the farm. And if I wasn't going to buy the farm, then I would move on to something else. But that uh, that one year turned into three years, and it was because of, of fear and indecision. Like I just, I, you've heard that expression, I got shit or get off the pot. I yeah. couldn't get off the pot. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons of that fear and indecision is because, <clears throat> no disrespect to my parents, but I had seen the way that they chose to live and, and, and run their business. They, they loved what they did and they eat, sleep and breathed farming. And I didn't necessarily want to do that. I, I had a lot of other interests outside of the farming. And uh, I guess I was conditioned to have the mindset and, you know, the example I have before me, you know, was my parents and how they grew up and how they chose to run their business and live their lives. So, I guess I saw that as my only plausible option or, or the way that my life and business would, would unfold if I was going to be a farmer. So I was afraid that I wasn't going to have freedom essentially to do the other things that I liked to do other than farming. 
And, uh, you know, I just, I beat myself up over this, this fear and indecision for three years. And, and I, 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 you know, after meeting some, some, some core people in my life, um, they helped me identify these, these destructive thinking habits and thinking patterns and mindsets that were going about in my mind, uh, allowing me not to see more options. And when I came to that realization, I, I realized the, you know, the fears uh, were a lot, essentially BS for the most part. Just these uh, stories that were, you know, on, on repeat playing about in my mind day to day. And uh, I moved beyond them. I, I just simply made the decision, yeah, I'll buy this farm and uh, I'm going to enjoy it. Probably not going to be doing it for the rest of my working life. And that's fine. And uh, if, if it's something I grow to dislike or it just doesn't excite me anymore, then I'll move on to something else. Because I, I was conditioned to think as well, that if I'm going to be a farmer, then I'm going to be a farmer for life. That's mm. just how it goes. So, that, yeah, that's the, that's the summary of the three years of fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's, uh, let, let's get into this. I, I, I don't know where um, you are in your life right now, but I feel like um, uh, there's definitely a, a, a few, I don't know if you guys are feeling this also. I really don't know if how I'm going to articulate this properly, but I feel like that there's a lot of people going through this transition right now um, that you just, that you went through these three years um, where there's something that they know that they need to do and they're just scared um, to take that leap. And um, I guess what I want to ask you is, is, uh, to just break down that that process, I try to bring in make a the, those those whole three years. Bring it down to three minutes. Um, let let's find out what's going on inside the egghead. Yeah, during that time. Yeah, well, actually, I, I could tell you the moment that I decided. It, it's you've maybe heard these moments described as quantum moments. You know, those moments where, like, you can remember where you were when JFK was assassinated or when the space shuttle exploded, that sort of thing. Well, this is how I relate this moment. And it was November 3rd, the day before my birthday in 2013, almost five years ago now. And I was living in my parents' basement at the time when I was home working and living on the farm. And, uh, you know, this is at the three-year point, basically, since I had come back to the farm. And they asked me, they said, so Aaron, are you going to buy this farm or what? And, you know, in a way, they forced me to make the decision. Um, but they they helped push me into that realization that, uh, that you know, I had to be honest with myself and, and simply just make a decision. How did it? How did it feel when? Uh, I'm sorry, just to cut, cut yep. in here. But um, you said that you're going to give yourself one year to make this decision. For those two years when you were past your due date, yeah, your expired milk. Um, how was that? How was that feeling? Uh, when when you're being totally honest with yourself, when you're when you actually when it comes up into your head after yep. all the distractions, um, and how how were you thinking as who you are? What did you truly think of yourself during that time? Uh, confused. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, my self-esteem wasn't compromised, but confused and lost and just indecisive. 
um, I guess that's the best way I can describe it. When I reflect back on that sort of two-year period, yeah, it's it's not it's not a period uh, I would choose to go back and experience again. Really, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe I could almost describe that period as a bit uncomfortable in my own skin at that point in my life too. Yeah, but as soon as you made the decision, did that that did it feel like a burden being lifted off you? It did. And it felt good? It did, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And how, how long ago was that when you made the decision? Yeah, uh, almost five years. Be five years in November. And here's the big question. How have the last five years been? Fantastic. When I, when I look back at who I was, you know, spiritually, mentally, uh, at that time, I don't even recognize myself. Really? Um, no, no. Um, you know, I... Guys, we both did the speaking program here um, yeah. half a year ago now where we met in London. Um, if I went back and told myself at that time, you know, you're going to do even public speaking in the future, I would have scoffed and laughed at that because uh, I'm, I'm a pretty introverted person with a lot of introverted tendencies. I, I describe self-describe myself as an extroverted introvert. And... Uh, it's not not something I would have pictured myself doing, for example, back at that time, looking into the future. So you would say that that, that decision you made was obviously the, the right one for personal growth. But yep. let's try to get under the covers on, on this one. Um, what, what about it enabled you to like blossom and grow per personally in many ways? Forget the farmer, I'm talking yeah. about Aaron personally, right? Was it because that, and I'm, I'm talking from my own personal experience now, working in a corporation, which I assume as an engineer you did, is soul-sucking in, in many ways, right? Um, so I, I think you, you were, one thing is you, you removed yourself from that situation, which I think helps a lot, right? And yeah. then you found something you love to do, right? So yeah. I could see how, you know, the combination of those two things would have a huge impact on, on your on your whole demeanor, your attitude, your body language, everything. And, and it's fascinating that, you know, choices, probably like the, the biggest choices in our lives are the ones that um, we agonize over a lot of times. Not, not most of the times. I remember in my life, I, I made big decisions just on the spur of the moment, just went with the feeling, right? But other times it was just like, I would drag it on and on and on and on, right? which is fascinating how the mind works. And I, I think one of the things I learned from that, and, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, is sometimes when we come face-to-face uh, -face with fear, we don't know how to handle it, right? Yeah. We, we don't know what to do. And what I've been trying to do lately, um, I rappelled down uh, the outside of a 30-story building the other day, and I'm terrified of heights, right? And the, and the reason I did that was not to repel down the building. I really didn't care one way or another. But the point was, when you come, up, when you come against like sheer terror, and I had that sheer terror, yeah. how do you quiet the mind, how do you, especially the heart? How do you quiet it and still move ahead, right? And, and yeah. in your case, how did you do it? Or was it just your parents kind of forcing you to do it? But there must have been some point internally when you said, when you overcame that fear and said, I'm doing it, right? 
Yeah, and it, it may not have been that specific moment when my parents asked me that that evening. Yeah, it probably it, wasn't. It, I think that was a catalyst to just force me to be a little more self-reflective and honest with myself and just fucking make a decision. And that's, that's you know, really one of the wins that I've taken away from, you know, that point in time five years ago is just taking action in, in whatever it is that decision point I'm facing in my life or a fear. Yeah. Yeah. It's taking action, whether it's the path that's meant for you or not, is very empowering. Yeah, action is definitely better than inaction. Even if you take the wrong action, you can always self-correct, right? But yep. sitting there doubting in fear, you know, agonizing over things, that's a sure recipe for not only unhappiness, but stagnation. Yeah. 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 And when you're in that holding pattern of indecision or fear, whatever it may be in our lives, I, you know, I, I think it's a, an energetic signal to the universe god however you want to describe it that uh you know you're, maybe you're not you're not open to opportunities to come your way or you're repelling them maybe damn you aaron <laughs> yeah Why? you're talking directly to me <laughs> <laughs> i think i think this discussion is timely for my for my, uh, me because yeah. I'm thinking about the same thing, like getting out of the corporate world, right? And, and it's hard because money's good, but you you know it's you know it's slowly killing you, right? If you, it's you it's hard it, to leave comfort, right? Yeah. Even if it is slowly killing you, because it's, it's 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 comfort and it's the known, right? It's jumping yeah. into the unknown that that is terrifying a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. So has part. It's part of the, the farming community. Like I always thought like farmers should have um, be given the utmost respect because they, they do probably the most important job of like feeding the populace, right? And now I, I don't know what percentage of people are farmers, but I'm sure it's very small. Yeah, basically in North America, U.S., Canada, it's 2%, the 2% feed the 98%. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, it brings a whole new meaning to the to the term the one percenters, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the good one percenters, yeah. two percenters. So, so there must be a sense of pride. Like I know that um, you mentioned that uh, you know healthy food and being able to produce um, produce the food ethically is is always important to you, and it's it's part of the whole um, message that. You, that you're that you come across with when it comes to farming, right? Yeah. How how difficult is it in farming to, to have that ethical um, bend to your business? Uh, well, for for me, for me and my wife, I mean, we both work in our farm business, yeah. along with my parents, still in some capacity. Um, you know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if it wasn't ethically right in our view. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And, and egg farming might be a little different, but I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm referring to more is like uh, crops. And I've heard stories about, uh, you know, Monsanto and how they, they pushed like their way into different farms across Canada and the U.S. Um, yeah. I don't think you have to deal with any like large corporation telling you what to feed the chickens, right? No, no. I, I work with uh, 
scientists, you know, animal nutritionists from uh, a company in, in Quebec, actually. And, uh, you know, the hens eat a more balanced diet than I do at times. Really? Yeah. You so know, there's a lot of, there's an extreme amount of science and, and knowledge that goes behind what we do in our farm. Well, to tell us a, a little bit about that, because I've never, I've never read anything or heard anything uh, along those lines. Yep. Yeah, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, so when, when you said earlier uh, <clears> that <throat> my farm feeds 30,000 people a day, where, where I'm getting that number is um, on our farm, we have roughly 30,000 hens. So you consider they're laying almost an egg a day. That's, if you're eating an egg a day, that's feeding 30,000 people. And, you know, the egg is like nature's perfect source of, of vitamins and minerals and, and protein. There's, there's actually, um, again, sorry to cut in because you're getting into something that's very interesting to me. There is a yeah. lot of uh, esoteric stuff that goes into the egg. Um, you split it open and it actually forms a symbol, um, the, the dot and the circle around. Um, and all sorts of crazy stuff going on with the egg. It's just, uh, it, it's crazy. But, uh, but get, into, get into the nutrition science stuff. Yeah. So on our farm, um, we have a feed mill. So what that means is we make our own chicken feed on our farm. We, we don't grow our own ingredients because we don't have the land base to do it. So we buy our cereal grains from uh, other farms in uh, Quebec and, and Ontario sometimes. And basically when we make chicken feed, it's, it's like a recipe that you would use to make something in your kitchen, like lasagna, for example or some sort of stew. You know, there's certain quantities of different ingredients that, uh, that you have to follow to make, to make a, a ton of chicken feed. That's how we make our feed. We make it, we quantify it by the ton. Because, um, well, on our hens, they, they eat a lot of feed. That's about 100 grams of feed per hen per day. And, uh, you know, we use, um, our hens are eating a vegetarian diet, essentially. They use cereal grains like uh, corn and, and soybean meal, which is, I don't know if you've heard of soybeans. A soybean meal is a, basically soybeans crushed with the soya oil taken out of them. And then they, uh, we give the hens vitamin supplements to get the minerals and nutrients that they may not get in the grains. Wow. And then we also feed the hens gravel and uh it might sound weird but the reason we do that is so we feed them limestone and uh the reason for that is because the uh, the hens extract the calcium from the limestone in order to form an eggshell because an eggshell is primarily made up of calcium calcium carbonate that's what makes it very strong and uh if you've ever seen or heard of someone with free-range hens at home that roam their backyard uh, if you've ever noticed they're actually um, those hens will actually eat dirt by themselves. And that's one of the reasons they do. It's because they need the calcium from the dirt. From the dirt. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So the other thing um, I wanted to get into is also the talk engagements that you've done. Um, yep. I haven't kept up with a lot of them uh lately because i haven't been on facebook but talk about like your your maybe the first couple you had after london real and the one late latest ones and what, what kind of um I, I know you talk about personal empowerment but maybe you can go into what exactly you talk to, about during those talks 
Yeah. So I'll just give you a precursor on how I started the speaking. Um, back in January 2016, I spent over a month in Swaziland, which is a, probably one of the world's tiniest countries. South and, Africa, right? Yeah, it's landlocked by South Africa, actually. Well, what were you doing there? Well, I was there representing my farm and, and then all the egg farmers across Canada helping um, two Canadians there that had a, a, an established farm and children's home. Um, I was there helping them learn how to operate a new egg farm that uh, we helped to build for them. And this egg farm was helping to nutritionally support these orphan children in this uh, children's home and, and also, excuse me, to, uh, to help foster, uh, or to also feed, you know, thousands of people a month throughout the rural communities in Swaziland because there's such a severe shortage of, of adequate healthy protein in that country. Really? So is yeah. Swaziland like a separate country, to, uh, separate from South Africa? It's not a province yeah. or anything, it's separate, right? No. It's completely surrounded, um, landlocked within South Africa. Right. It's just, uh, Mozambique, I think, is just to the to the east, and uh, I think it's it may be one of the last remaining um, uh, kingdoms, like com complete kingdom um, government. So there's a, a king, he has twenty plus wives, and he controls everything right down to like this, the mobile uh, phone cellular network. Wow. Yeah. And uh, interesting country. It's, it's very tiny. You know, it's probably about land areas, probably not much larger than Prince Edward Island here in Canada, but population just under a million, but it has the highest incidence of HIV and AIDS in the world, like somewhere around 45% of the population. And wow. And out of that, just under a million people, um, there's over 200,000 orphaned children because of the AIDS epidemic. So all these parents that had died, you know, left behind all these children. Wow. And these two Canadians uh, helped or, or created this farm and this children's home to, you know, to alleviate the, the orphan problem in that country and to, to raise these children as their own and educate them to be future leaders in the communities in that country and, and, and within that country. And, you know, obviously many of them will travel around the world. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So when I left there, January, 2016, there were, I think there were just over a hundred orphaned children on this children's home. And now there's like 200, I think. And this Canadian family, um, they're the legal guardians for all these children. Like these children aren't up for adoption. They, they take them in between the ages of, uh, of uh, you know, birth to about 12 months and, you know, under a year old. And then they raise them until, until they're, you know, educate them until they're young adults. Yeah. Wow, this is a long-term commitment for them, obviously. It is. When I left there, the, the oldest child was six. So they're all six and under. <laughs> Did do they have a website or something for if, if anyone yeah. wants to donate? Absolutely. It's called Heart for Africa. Uh, Project Canaan, C-A-N-A-A-N, I believe. I'll, I'll look into that. That sounds yeah. like a very worthwhile project. Yeah, just an amazing project. They've got a lot going on there. 
And how did that lead to the the topics you're covering? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We kind of went down the rabbit hole here. So, <laughs> Pull um, yourself out of that rabbit hole. Yeah, from that whole experience, you know, I, I was, I'd been on social media for a couple of years. Right. And I didn't go there with the intention of making this, uh, you know, a social media spectacle. But I, I just shared that whole experience when I was there. And it, it really just exploded in, in you know, through Facebook, the platform I was on at the time, and still am, um, you know, people just became very engaged in, in what I was doing there and, and just everything that I was sharing about my whole experience there. And when I got home, I, I wanted to share that whole experience and that story. And that's how I started into the speaking. And then it evolved beyond speaking about that experience and, and evolved into speaking about personal empowerment and, and what I learned from that whole, you know, two to three years of indecision of wanting to buy the farm or not. Right. Uh, I shared a lot of those experiences and lessons. And then, you know, we all together, we took the professional speaking program with London Real um, last December. And, and actually since then I've, I think I've only spoken at one event since then. And that was in February. And after that event, as soon as I was done speaking at that event, I, you know, I just came to this realization that I don't want to do this anymore. So I haven't, mm. and I don't know why, you know, I haven't, it hasn't upset me or I haven't, you know, it hasn't, I haven't lost sleep over it. I, I figure it's probably something that will, that I want to uh, do again at some point in the future. At some point, but now there are other mountains to climb. Yeah. Yeah, literally. <laughs> That's another thing I like to do. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, it's interesting. After London Real, uh, I've I thought about like giving public speeches. Yep. Um, but I, I really wasn't drawn to it myself. Yeah. Uh, for a few different reasons. Um, and, and I found that ever since we started doing the podcast, it's not public speaking, but it satisfies that, that need for self-expression that you get from public speaking, right? right. Um, and it also satisfies, or, or actually what I think it does better than public speaking is, is helps you connect with people, very interesting people um, directly, right? And yes. I think that part of it is is so satisfying to me that ever since we started these podcasts, I really haven't even thought about public speaking anymore because I get so much satisfaction out of this format. Yeah. in this format, you know, just the very nature of podcasts, you know, the Q and a back and forth, yeah. I think brings an incredible amount of value to the listeners. It does. And I think, um, I think it was, uh, you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Yes. And he, I heard him give a, a talk and he was basically saying that uh the regular the standard news media outlets are dead for a lot of reasons and the, these long form discussions without any editing is basically what's taking over communication education and, and the news arena um and there's a lot of examples of it and I, I think i think it's doing that for a lot of different reasons one is i think people are just they want to get by their constant distractions. They, I think they really want to sit down and be able to concentrate on something for an extended period of time. Even though we keep hearing all these studies that people are, are 
unable to do that anymore. Their attention spans down to, I don't know what, two, three seconds now, like something ridiculous. Um, and this format kind of like fights against that trend, which I think is really, really good. And I think the other thing is, um, and living on the East Coast there, I'd like to get your opinion. I, I think a lot of people have distrust uh, when it comes to the major news st media stations, right, for a lot of different reasons. Like, do you find that out on the East Coast? Or is that even the topic out there? Can you just repeat it there, Anthony? You, you sort of froze there just for a few seconds. Right. So I missed the first half of your question. The, the question was um, as to why these long-form uh, podcast-type form, formats seem to be working. Uh, the second reason I thought might be that there's – it's not just because of like what, what Trump's saying, but I think a lot of people distrust what they, what they hear in, in the news, right? Um, it almost feels like it's all – being generated behind the scenes by large corporate interests for selling something, right? Almost everything seems to be like that these days. Um, whereas these podcasts are totally the opposite. It's just people, interesting people, giving their uh, opinions about certain things. And I think that's another reason um, it's really taken off. So I guess my question really was on the East Coast, like, how do people get their news? Like, do do they still rely on the major news networks or are they getting somewhere else or is the community still huge? Like, you know, out there, like the farming community, is that where they get their news? Like, where do you get your news, Aaron? <laughs> well, I live in a rural community. So my, my rural community gets their news through gossip, which I try and distance myself from. <laughs> I, I thought you were, <laughs> I almost thought you were going to say through God. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, out east here, we, we tend to be behind the rest of the nation in, in many ways uh, as a society or maybe or as a culture here. And, and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Uh, yeah. But um, there is still, I think, a pretty heavy reliance on the mainstream media here by, by the masses, I think. Right. Um, I wouldn't count, count myself amongst uh, being that mass. Um, I, I get my information as limited as it may be from from other sources, and and like you mentioned, I'm I'm a huge believer and supporter of of long form podcast content. If I had a if I had to like speculate on um, uh, on the number one thing that's killing news, because you can go and you can say, oh, it has no trust to it. There's no you can't believe these people. I, that's always been there. That's always existed. There's always been a bias. There's always been people selling you. They, they literally, back in the 60s, they usually called it like an hour where they're trying to sell you something. It'd be like the, the, uh, the, the DuPont chemical comedy hour. And it was like literally like owned by them and they would like say it, even though it still is. But um, it, it's, the, it's the edits. It's, it's the sound bites. It's these things. You, you, you see it time and time again. Some, one person, you see one person get that you like get misrepresented based on an edit. And that's like the end of it for you. You're, you're like, you're like, wow, I have to pay attention to these, to these little blips, like the little things where it cuts out in and out and, and actually see what makes sense. And then you realize any time that you, that like any, like anyone who has an IQ above 90 can see when somebody cuts out even a word um, from, from what somebody's saying, it completely changes the sentence. It completely changes the meaning and, and, the, and the intonation. So it's like, um, uh, you get rid of the edits and everyone's just like, 
I, I don't even care what they say. Like, I, I'll, I just want to listen to somebody actually complete a sentence, complete an argument, and, and see it go from beginning to end. These people, the people believe that these two-minute things where somebody goes on CNN and then they just yell at each other, they, people think that that's an actual argument. And it's like, that nothing is getting solved here. We're just yelling at each other for two minutes. But then you see, um, I, I don't know if you guys watch Stephen Crowder, Louder with Crowder, but he goes on campuses and, and he just, he's like, we're, we, don't, we don't cut and edit, splice it, just watch us argue. And it's like, it, it was the most fascinating. I, I, watched, I, I spent 11 hours a few weeks ago just watching every single one. I was like, this is amazing. This is the, the most fun thing I've ever seen in my life. And, and he's getting like eight, nine, 10, 12 million views on each, on each thing. So it's like, it, it's showing you that, that there is this hunger for, for truth. And you don't even have to, it, it's not even about like, you, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Steven Crowder says, but it's like, it was just so amazing to see people get from one point of an argument to another, like complete from, from end to end and, and just kind of see how people's minds slowly start changing over time and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, Anthony, <laughs> you brought that up. So it was just like, it's been on my head for like, for like two weeks now. And, and it's wow, you like, went off on a tangent on that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something that's been thoughts for a while. Yeah. It's been, it's been blowing my mind lately. Um, it's, yeah. it's those edits, but, um, um, I guess getting back on track, I, I, um, um, I, I guess we could kind of get, uh, talk about, um, you're, you've been doing these videos on social media. That's kind of how I've been keeping tabs on you. Yep. And, um, uh, do you, are you still doing those or, um, have you, have you kind of cut back on those as uh, along with your uh, public speaking? No, I'm still doing them, Justin, maybe not to the frequency that I have, uh, say over the summer, um, you know, I'm, I'm normally posting daily, uh, the last maybe two months I haven't been posting daily as much. And, uh, you know, it's not that I'm avoiding social media or anything. Um, I, I find myself perhaps in, in sort of a creative slump, maybe the last two months for whatever reason. Um, maybe uh, sort of a, a, a content block, perhaps. Mm. But you know, I, I know that's not going to last. Um, not, you know, it helps with slumps. What's that? Uh, press the go live button. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we learned that one, didn't we? <laughs> the, that's one thing I, I have to say that. If I was to summarize, the one thing I got out of uh, doing London Real is that it'll never be perfect. You know, put some, put your best effort into it, but don't spend too much time and just do it. Right? Just, just do take it. Action. Take action. Take action. That, that's and it goes back to our earlier discussion, right? It, it always comes down to taking action, even if it's the wrong action. You can always self-correct, right? But if you just keep taking action, taking action. Um, it's the persistence. It's um, yeah. you, as long as you're making a, a little step forward mm -hmm. and you just keep doing it day in and day out, you win. And that, that's like, that's just where it goes. Yeah. Right. And I think my the big, often, sorry, sorry, go ahead. My wife will often say to me from time to time, if we find ourselves against the wall at a decision point right. on, on anything, 
she'll say to me, well, the universe likes speed. So in other words, get your ass in gear and make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, I guess the two themes that we've been, that, that we're connecting in this, um, in this episode is uh, transition points where action is, is hitting a bottleneck. And then um, once you get past that transition point, you got to make, you, you got to start taking action. And, it, and it, it, if you, if you take the example of, of your farm, if you even just said, all right, uh, parents, mom and dad, I'm buying the farm. And then you buy the farm. That doesn't mean that, that it's over. That's not, that's just the beginning. The transition is just the beginning. Yep. And you could have done all of those things. You could have purchased the farm, um, taken it off of your parents' hands and done jack shit. And that, and you'd still be in the transition point. You wouldn't be in the, um, in, in the action taking point. You still have to take the action and then everything starts opening up. Yep. And they, they start opening up on a very focused route, um, uh, whatever you're focusing on. So, um, so Aaron, did, did you find it's easier for you, you to make those difficult decisions now? Like after making that big one, does it make future ones easier? Absolutely. You know, one of the fears, you know, the points of indecision that I was at there those few years back was I was, I was scared shitless of, of the money, the financial commitment. The, the yeah, that's a big one. Well into the six figures or seven figures. And, uh, you know, you know, I've, I've got big mortgage payments for my farm every month because we did a big expansion, build a new barn, and I bought the business all at the same time. So I borrowed a lot of money to do this all at the same time. And, and it's, it was the best thing to do, to do it like we did. But, you know, those big numbers, they don't frighten me anymore. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's one of the, the, the cool things about taking on debt. I, when I get nervous about taking on debt when I do like little, like tiny ones, but when it's a big one, it's like, you know, what are they going to do? Kill me if I can't pay these off? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's good debt and bad debt, right? Like yeah. Yeah. gambling at a casino, that's bad debt. Debt that can service itself, good debt. That's where I am. So. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the intent. Pro usury. I like it. Boring, right? To, to make money off it. That's awesome. So are there any other expansion plans for the farm? Um, yeah, my wife and I were, <clears throat> were entertaining possibly getting into growing apples. Um, but we were, you know, when we were honest with ourselves, we were more interested in it for the money than we were for the love of, or in the craft of doing it. Right. So we've, you know, we've, we've been honest with ourselves. We're not going to follow that path. What about marijuana? Reasons. That might satisfy both points. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of burns um, on our farm that we don't use anymore just from efficiencies and modernization. And, you know, we've, we've often thought of, of how, you know, ways that we could utilize these old chicken burns basically right. to, uh, to grow, you know, in, indoor crops. But actually, um, we're, we're in the process. My wife and I were, were getting into we're very early in the stages. We're just setting up a new company now to get into uh, real estate. Real estate investing? Yeah, and income properties and whatnot. So you guys might appreciate the name. My wife picked this out. It's Zenfinite Growth. 
Inc. Nice. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you decide, you know, to uh, to go the uh, the hemp marijuana route, yeah. Um, give me a call because that would be very interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's as you might know, Justin. It's uh, it's uh, being legalized in Canada here, marijuana, very shortly, and I know in, in all the nearby cities and communities. Um, where I live, the provincial government here is is controlling the sale of uh, marijuana like they do control the sale of alcohol. So, you know, all these hemp or, you know, pot shops, whatever you want to call them, are popping up around the communities next to the Tim Hortons. (laughs) (laughs) So, Justin, you're interested, just out of my own curiosity, you're interested because you're as an investor or as a consumer of the product? (laughs) <laughs> no oh. to be to be honest um a, I, I, I i'm getting a, a, just by talking to farmers and you're you're actually the second farmer i've talked to recently it's it there is there is an allure to um farming itself to actually doing uh to to growing things and um uh, you know when, when you talked about the apples that that, that idea kind of perked my attention i, I like apples a lot and and the, and the thing is is um, farmers sometimes take for granted, they, they don't realize that, that there are humans out there who have never grown anything in their entire lives. They've never right. taken a seed and put it into the ground and saw it sprout, see it sprout up and, and actually grow it. Like, and um, to not have that experience, you, one, it, it goes into the patience thing. You, you don't realize that, that nothing just happens overnight. You have these computers and you click and it's done. Uh, uh, but to have something take weeks and months and then that, that there's plants out there that take 23 years to actually blossom actual uh, fruits and vegetables and stuff. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating um, and, and enlightening in, in a way too. Yeah. Farming is, you know, it, it's the inherent, it's at the core of civilization. Yeah. It has been wherever humans have, have settled around the world. Any, has, has been the core of their survival. Historically, any time that there was a, a revolution, it was a, after an agricultural regu- revolution. Um, so you had the Industrial Revolution. Everyone talks about how great that was, that we're at the ends of that and all that stuff. Um, it, didn't, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the uh, Agricultural rev- Revolution, which happened a couple hundred years before when they realized that they could uh, plant turnips uh, during the winter. And then they... Uh, created new stirrups for the oxen and stuff, so it wasn't choking the oxen when they were uh, tilling the land. And and, um, and then obviously before that, the the the, the original agri, just even learning how to plant crops properly and, and all that stuff. Then you have the cities, and it's always the agriculture first, um, and then the then the crazy expansion. Yeah. So, Aaron, are are there any like major fears you co- in your life you're coming up against now? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is is maybe <laughs> the fear of the impending winter. I don't know what it is, but with the onset, and I love fall. Yeah. The, the the air, the the visual splendor that it offers in this part of the country. But there's there's something I guess about the fall that it almost to me has this an underlying sense of impending doom because of the shorter days and, and less sunlight. Um, 
you know, not, not as much opportunity to spend time outdoors in, in yeah. comfortable temperatures. And, and I find myself maybe more susceptible to that as I age. I don't know if I have a bit of I know I am. disorder or what it yeah. is. But, but um, I know I consciously, my wife and I are, both have goals this winter to, you know, to do some learning um, to the nearby, uh, the nearest city, St. John, and, and uh, take a course at the university. Um, maybe one or two nights a week, whatever it is, whether it's accounting or uh, some languages. But uh, I, I know living in Canada in the winter, yeah, for, for us especially, it's very important to to engage our minds and, uh, you know, not let uh, being on, you know, our devices be the norm for the whole winter. Yeah. Well, I think me and Justin are going to plan to go down Costa Rica January, February on an ayahuasca trip if you want to join us. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, there was one that, that was that'll warm me up. April. Did that happen? <laughs> no, that, that, never, that never happens. Okay. We were planning one to Ecuador. Uh, Julian yep. knew someone from one of the other classes that lived down there and they're going to set it up. Uh, but it turned out to be a little too pricey for some people. Yeah. So we decided not to do it, but uh, Jessup found a place in Costa Rica where it's all set up, five-star hotel, pool. Yeah, it's it's like uh, as I always say, um, it's it's in the forest. Like you can have the the jungle experience, but if you start feeling uncomfortable, there's a five-star resort like just over there, so you're good. Um, and and that's kind of that's relieving. <laughs> <laughs> It's not only relieving; it's necessary. <laughs> yeah, because nothing's more stressful than than taking an unusual substance and being in the in the jungle of a jungle that you've never been in before, and uh, no bed. Yeah, it's just bed. As long as I know I have a bed to go back to, I'm okay. I can handle. I can. I can. I can face any fear. <laughs> but no beer. I mean, no bed to go back to. It's a whole different story. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the same way, except it has to be a five-star resort. And uh, then I'll do anything. Yeah. So, Aaron, the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, you, you mentioned, like, your view for humanity um, moving forward, like, uh, in discovering our own, I guess, self-awareness. Um, yep. Spiritual hustle is all about kind of, like, looking beyond or piercing through the veil to understand how the universe really works, like from a mystical, magical perspective. Um, and I think mysticism is becoming the new science uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and, and not only understand that, but understand our place in it. Um, I would love to get uh, the empowered farmer's perspective of what self-awareness is and how you're approaching that. Yeah. Well, what self-awareness means to me is... Yeah. Essentially, <clears throat> big part of it for me is to realize and be conscious of when I'm judging myself or other people or situations. Yeah. And when I had, a, I guess I could describe it as a, a spiritual shift or awakening back in 2010, I think it was. Uh, it, it's a book that helped cause that shift in, in the way I saw myself in the world. And I, I remember. What was the book? It was um, Eckhart Tolle's second book, I believe. Okay. Canadian. 
German author. You've maybe heard of him. Yeah, I've read his first book, Power of yeah, Now. Like his, Power of Now. Yeah, his, his second book was the one that I'd read at the time, um, A New Earth, I think it's called. Something like that. Anyway, <clears throat> when when he described his personal experience of his his spiritual awakening, uh, he found himself in in a park bench in London, the UK, and uh, just found himself hypersensitive and aware of of everything physically going on around the world in front of right. him. You know, the smell of the trees and the flowers, that sort of thing. And I sort of had that hypersensitivity to you know, thoughts going about in my mind, you know, I, I <clears throat> saw myself as the, you know, the observer of the mind, right? Mm. Which I think is where our true selves really are from that observer point of view. And uh, I just became very hypersensitive to when I was judging other people and myself. And I would catch myself and I didn't beat myself up over it. But I, I just, you know, I just became aware of it every time it happened. Right. And I guess that's what self-awareness means to me, I guess. And does that include also catching yourself in those moments where you feel gratitude for yeah. what's around? Because yeah. I found th those moments are very powerful. Yeah. yeah it's almost like gratitude allows the universe to kind of come into your sphere and assists. At least that, that's what it feels like to me. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. It, it opens us up to the sphere that we're already a part of, really. Yeah. Yeah. Our, yeah. our, mon our monkey minds, you know, create this false barrier sense of self where we think we're separate from. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like I've, I've, oh, fuck, I talk about this for hours. How much time you got? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, my experience, I had a couple of spiritual experiences. One was where the, where the mind went away and the heart opens up and you feel your connectedness to everything, right? It's what Einstein referred to as um, the unified field, right? And, and he mentioned that the, the field is the sole governing particle of the sole gov governing principle of the particle, meaning that it's the field that creates the reality. Even though we just see the particle, it's really the field is what reality is, not the particle, right? Um, yeah. And, and when my heart opened up, the mind went away and there was no, none of that chatter. So in, instead of uh, having to think, I was in a place of knowing, like there was no analysis required, there was no thinking, you, you, I just knew, I just knew whatever there was for me to know it was there, right? So to, to what that proved to me, oh, and in that state, I found out what's true faith is and true faith is is the absence of the mind right because because without that chatter whatever you think of like you don't have any doubt or fear towards anything and it's almost like whatever you focus on you know it's going to happen right you know it's going to happen um and, and that was such a liberating experience and i realized that the and and, and it's, it's hard describing this to people because most people like understand the value of the mind, right? Because you can use it for analytical purposes. You can, you can analyze this decision or that decision and pick the best one for you, right? Like, so why wouldn't you want, like, why wouldn't you want the mind, right? The average person who hasn't delved into their spiritual side, they can't understand that at the same time that 
facility separates you from the totality of yourself. And it keeps you, even though it helps in the three-dimensional world, it also entraps you into that three-dimensional world. It doesn't let you explore beyond it. And so to me, what I've been trying to do in my spiritual practice is get beyond the mind and get into that unified field, which I think, which to me right now is, is what reality, the, the unified field is reality. This third-dimensional world is kind of just a reflection of that. It is, and the physical world is, is it's all an illusion, right? Yeah, that's like what I mean. On a molecular atomic level. It's just space. It's 99.9% .9 empty space, right? That's right. And I, and I harped on this, to, like, this stat, I don't know how many times, because remember we had to put together speeches that had stats, 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 I believe three stats in a row, right? And the, and the stat that I loved was that we perceive 1% of the electromagnetic field, right? That means 99% of reality, what's out there, we have no idea what it constitutes, right? So there could be shit happen all around us that we would never, and we would never know, right? We, we, couldn't, we couldn't tap into that. So how much do we really understand of our reality if we only perceive 1% of it, right? Not a whole fucking lot. This is kind of a side tangent, but it's interesting that I work with hens because uh, hens are birds, and, and yeah. birds see a much wider range bandwidth of the electromagnetic spectrum than humans do. Really? They see into the UV spectrum uh, of visual light. And yeah, it's fascinating, you know, the, the anatomy of birds and their, and their abilities. And uh, I find energetically as well, like working with our hens, um, I think on some level they, they can sense or, or draw from the energy that you might be emitting as a person when you're around. Right. Did you ever see the hens like, like kind of turn their head quickly as if something's coming in the room that you can't see? Because that would be freaky. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. Working with hens, it seems no matter where you are in, in my barn, it looks like all the hens are always looking at you. <laughs> all the two eyes and, and the side of their all head. All their eyes are following you as you move across. Yeah. yeah. That is cool. Yeah. So there, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on with, that, with birds. Um, yeah. yeah I, th I think you're onto something observing them. Um, the, the two most common animals that um, kind of represent um, uh, basically like the, the priest stuff of ancient times is, uh, was always the bird and the serpent, the snake. Um, and, um, so it, it's something that, that's, uh, always been, been very interesting to me, uh, birds and snakes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but without talking about it for like six hours to so just, uh, just leave it at that and move on. <laughs> <laughs> So Aaron, you, you mentioned that uh, one, one thing we talked about in regards to if you had a message to give to the audience, what would it be? And um, I, I believe what you talked about was um, moving, taking action and moving towards what your heart is calling you to do. Um, on the surface, that sounds like great advice. Yep. My, my challenge in the past has always been you know, is it my heart? Is it my gut? Is it like a three-dimensional being standing to my side telling me what to do? Sometimes yeah. it's hard to 
zero in on what the heart is telling you or get a clear message? Like, how do you, do you have that issue or and how do you work through that? Well, a good friend of mine uh, explained, because I asked her uh, this a few years back, I said, how, when you're- well, By the way, of, women are better at it. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why this lady pointed it to me. <laughs> um, I asked her, you know, how do you, when you're at a, uh, you know, you've hit a block or a wall in your life at a decision point, how do you decide what way to go, what to do? And she said, Aaron, I, you know, I take that decision point, whatever it is in my life, and I, I hold it in my mind. And like, you know, we went through this exercise, close your eyes and you hold that in your mind, in your, in your head physically. And, uh, and then take that same point, position point, and, and close your eyes and hold it in your heart. Put your hand on your chest. And, and for her, and, and when I, I, I do this on a regular basis with position point, I, I, I take that decision in my heart. And nine, eight times out of ten, um, I make those decisions out of my heart, right, in my mind. And it ends up being the right decision. That, that's pretty cool. So when you say you take it into your heart, like you can actually feel like energy in your heart or how, how's that? I, feel? Well, I, 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 f I focused, it's hard to just hard to explain. Um, I, I just hold that, I hold that question, if you will, you know, should I do this? What should I do? Whatever it is. Right. Um, I, I physically hold it at that point in my body, in my, in my heart versus my, my head. Yeah. I think when we, when we take those decisions, when we hold it in our head, we tend to uh, just overanalyze things. Yeah. Paralysis analysis. Yeah. So l let me explain to you like how I've been doing it the last couple of weeks. I've been actually like putting my hand on my heart and I can feel like the energy that the, literally the energy and I can feel it like, building up and, and it's tangible. It's almost physical, the energy, right? And I've been doing that for the last week, and I find generally when, when I do that and keep, can keep that energy up, I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm, I'm happy all the time, right? And I was doing great uh, for a whole week doing it. Like I was ecstatic. I was happy. But then I went back to the corporation to work on Monday, and it was harder to do it. I could still do it, but it was harder, right? So I, I'm wondering that when you say in your heart, like whether you feel that the energy in your heart or you just feel the, the calmness inside you. I think I feel the calmness more yeah. so. More so than maybe some perception of some unknown energy, maybe for me. Right. You know, the experience can be different for everyone, right? And it, I, think, I think it is. That's why I'm always interested in finding out what other people's experiences are. Like when, when they say, when they say common phrases, like, you know, get into your heart, what does it really mean for you? Right. Now I think what, why that is valuable, it, it, it opens up your different, your like viewpoint in regards to what that means for yourself. Right. And, and it can deepen your own experience because it just makes the box a little bigger. Right. Which is always yeah. a good thing. I find for me personally, when I do that comparison of holding that question here versus here, like I can perceive the difference right. from going from here to here. Like when I move that question to my heart, I most of the time I just know this is what I need to do. 
<laughs> that sounds like an interesting experiment. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but uh, it was it was eye opening when uh, my friend shared that with me. And I still use it. Yeah, why wouldn't you? You you could write a whole book on that one concept. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> one day, or, or more than one. Yeah, I, I've always had that dream too of trying to of writing a book, and, and and I've known friends that have written a book. And it, my my biggest challenge, I don't know if your challenge is too, when you think about writing a book, like you, you get excited about it, but at the same time you get overwhelmed by the amount of work. But they actually had um, ghostwriters assisting them with it, and it made the whole process relatively painless. Right. So, so if you all do want to write a book about being the empowered farmer, which I think there'd be, there'd be a huge market for that. If you want to do that, you can get a ghostwriter to help you. Yeah. What, what is a ghostwriter exactly? Well, they basically, you, you have a talk with them, right? And you tell okay. them the story um, and you could, you could do it completely verbally as to what you want in the book. Uh, the stories that you want in the book, the message that you want in the book, but they're the, actually the ones that write it all down, make, make sure it flows, make sure the grammar is correct. They, they, are, they do the hard work of putting it on paper yeah. in a manner that is uh, professional. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, and they're, they're not that expensive. And it's well worth it if you want to write a, a book or two. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I've heard, you know, I've, I've listened to, I listened to the Tim Ferriss show podcast all the time. Yeah, this is good. He's, he's shared a lot of experiences from writing his books and how, you know, he wrote his books himself um, and, you know, how exhaustive and, and all consuming the process is for him personally. Right. You know, it take a year or more and, uh, yeah, just it's it sounds like an extreme commitment on, you know, a, a spiritual level even too. Not something I'm afraid of, but it's just interesting. <laughs> the, uh, that's right. That's not one fear that's going to stop me. I'll tackle no, bastard. It's um, just interesting to hear writers describe their experiences. It's um, yeah, and I, I like. Uh, it, it's also good to. to try these things out and do them for yourself. Cause then you just, you, you gain so much more respect for um, when people write out a whole story. Um, and uh, like, even just like with my editing and stuff in, in, and filming and it's like um, somebody goes, they like, they watch a movie and they're like, they're like, man, that movie was garbage. Everyone who worked on it is piece of garbage and all, all this nasty stuff. And you're like, you're like, man, you know, you just have more respect for the ability to get something out onto a screen and, and uh, or on a piece of paper. Um, when you sit down and you try to do it yourself and then you, when you, you get hit by that, that wave of, of being overwhelmed and you know, there's no, there's no way that the other person who finished the book didn't experience some of that somewhat. Um, and, and they overcame it and it, it just, it, it, it gives you more respect for, for people who are creative, people who are able to, 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 to put the pen and paper on uh, and, and get it done. Um, and it makes you like stuff more that, that people do. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, damn it. I'm writing a book. <laughs> <laughs>
Aaron, I was I was watching um, I think it was a YouTube video by Sad Guru, who's a, like um, he's a pretty famous guru in India now, right? And um, his talks are actually pretty interesting. But one of the points that he t talked about was evolving yourself spiritually, and there's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? You can go to the ashram yeah. in India, you can meditate. Um, but the third one that I never, that he talked about that I never thought about was having deep conversations with people that make you think and, and move you and, and look at things differently. That he said is one of the best ways to evolve yourself spiritually. And, yes. and I, and I, yeah, and it, and it seemed to make so much sense to me though. I didn't really think about it before that. Right. Um, and the reason I, I bring that up is, like having these discussions, like discussion we had today, like these discussion we had to, to with you today has, has energized me and made me think about things that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so for that, I'm grateful. I feel like I've evolved through this discussion, which is really the purpose of these podcasts, right? Whether or not anyone else listens to them, the fact that hopefully everyone that partakes in them feels like some sort of evolution is really, and this is, I'm just talking stream of consciousness here, is really like the main point of doing them, right? And if they can assist anyone else, all the better. Yeah, and, uh, and, and as somebody who sometimes flies off the handle when they're talking, it's always nice to talk to somebody who is so calm and collected as yourself. Uh, it's very soothing and, uh, and, and relaxing. <laughs> stream of consciousness as always, so. I don't, even, I don't even need how that. Many time, how many times uh, during a podcast you fly off the handle, Justin? Um, Just on average. During this kind uh, or on average as a whole? Average um, as a whole. Uh, let's see. How many times? Uh, let, let, let's figure out how many times I speak, and then I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, they're roughly right around uh, similar, sim, similar uh, numbers right there. Yeah. <laughs> I would think of like three per podcast, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> <laughs> it adds a little bit of energy and uh, uncertainty, right? We all we all got to be comfortable with uncertainty. I mean, I it's think like it's like a it's like a really powerful left hook, um, <laughs> but you're not even fighting, so it's just like it's like like what that where did that come from? Why? <laughs> yes, I, I think that's part of the attraction, the draw to to podcasts in in the medium and the platform for a lot of people, whether it's unconscious or or not is you know it's it's so natural it's 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 like it's a conversation between two or three people right right that was that was how anthony sold it to me was uh he i was like well, we got to do this on the podcast dad you got to stay focused and anthony was just like it's like um actually how about we just have a conversation with people and then i was yeah. like like that sounds a lot easier than what i was planning so yeah i uh i listened to the podcast on the weekend with uh, on the joe rogan uh experience where he interviewed elon musk yeah i saw that i think the stocks can't after that yeah <laughs> yeah i, I think i don't get the fact they're, they're both smoking pot on the show i think that's what yeah 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 but you know it was it was just two guys shooting the shit i mean they, there was right. a little structure but it was interesting right for a second there i thought you were saying you were saying that uh you were listening to the spiritual hustle po podcast on the weekend. 
I will be now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the yeah. empire is built. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We always we always get one one solid view, um, and it's always the person that we interview. So it's like yes, moving on up the the rankings. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Though there is one out there with seventy seven views. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gus, I think he let it, all his friends know. So that, that, that. Oh. Gus, was, that was a great interview. Yeah. You guys publish like the audio and video? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So is there anything else you, you wanted to cover, Aaron? Um, no, nothing that comes to mind. We, uh, it, it, this conversation has been fantastic because like you just mentioned, um, Sadhguru, mentioned you know spiritual development and just genuine interesting conversations with right with people and this is part of that and where my wife and i live in a rural area um you know we both lived in the in the city came i came back to a rural area where i grew up uh, my wife had never lived in a rural area before she was a city girl all her life wow so it was a, she must really love you yeah it was it was a big shift for her, um, but we, we we do struggle, especially going into the winter and and those community connections and and having these kinds of conversations with people out around here where we live are few and far between, and yeah. uh, you know we we find ourselves craving that social interaction that we had yeah. when we lived in the city, right? Which city did you live in? Pardon me. Which city did you live in? I lived in, Kara uh, and I both lived in, in St. John, New Brunswick, which is a coastal city. It just about, it, you know, it's about an hour's drive from here. It, it takes us about an hour to get to anywhere from where I live. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm envious at a lot of my other farmer friends because they're only, you know, 10 or 15 minute drive outside of town or the city, right? Make sure to, to if you get lonely, send us a message. Um, to talk sometime this, uh, this winter. Um, yeah. it's, uh, you know, you're, you're enjoyable to talk to and, uh, and Anthony and I enjoy talking. So it's a win-win. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, um, I, I will start throwing, throwing it out there and, and poke the, the bears in our group, our old group, and, you know, start having these conversations a little more frequently again as a group. That'd be great. And by the way, that last comment, Justin, that's the first time we're going to edit something out right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there, there was some discussion on the, the regular chat group of, of getting a call, I guess, uh, two or three weeks ago, but it kind of died off. Yeah. It would be good. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with anyone else from? Uh... Um, Hendrick now and then. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are in the same group? Um, no, we weren't actually. Yeah, we were, I guess. Um, he interviewed me for his podcast maybe a month or so ago. Oh. Yes, yeah, so yeah. probably six to eight weeks ago now. You, you, uh, did you reach out, Anthony, to uh, Hendrick? No, I haven't reached out to him yet. I'll do that. I'll reach out yeah, and see if he's available. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I... Uh, the Dutch fascinate me. Um, the uh, 
the automation control system in, in my new barn was, was built in the Netherlands and I was having some technical problems back in the spring. So I was dealing with the people in the Netherlands with it and, you know, it didn't seem the message was getting across of these things that I needed addressed and troubleshooted. Right. So I called a dairy farmer friend of mine here um, in New Brunswick, who's Dutch, you know, so I, you know, I spoke to him culturally, you know, culturally, how do I, you know, make it clear or, or concise to, to the, uh, this, this individual that, you know, the things I want them to address with this computer system. And he said, there are two things that the Dutch pride themselves on. And um, one is being direct. And uh, I can't remember the other one. So anyway, I, I was very direct in the next communication I had with this individual and things got done. They actually flew over here and all things. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Did they fly over the next day? Not the next day. It was a week or two later. Okay. Well, yeah. That's cool. There's something else I wanted to share that, that just, uh, when you mentioned it, it came to mind when you were talking about said guru. Hmm and the things we can do for spiritual development. Meditation uh, is one of them. Um, I went on a motorcycle trip by myself last week. And, uh, you know, it's been years since I've, I went on an extended trip on my motorcycle uh, by myself. And, you know, I found the whole week, like was a meditation on two wheels. Yeah. Um, you know, I could have put in my earbuds and listened to podcasts and that sort of thing. But I, as a practice, I don't do that when I'm on a motorcycle because I've been riding bikes for 15 years and I've learned that, you know, you have to be four times as aware on a motorcycle. Oh yeah. Attentive than you are in a, in a car or traffic. Right. More multiple times for every less wheel that you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just find the whole experience. Like it's like a moving meditation and, and uh, just a joy, especially driving through, rural areas and that you, you you smell the plants the flowers and you feel the thermal changes in temperature in your body and you know going through a valley for example or coming wow. up onto a hilltop that actually sounds amazing because um, that's the that's the there's a couple things you lose when you're doing the same drive in an automobile um one is the allure of the radio and um the sec you it, you have a screen everything's blocking you from those those sensations yeah um uh, that's a that's a great thing and, and that 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 just puts something into my head that I want to do that now. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, I bought this bike to do this like five years ago. It's an on off road bike, so I can go camping on it, right? And I hadn't done it since I got it. So I, I did it. I you know, I took this bike and went camping. And awesome. Uh, yeah, it was just a great, great week. So you just camped along the way, no hotels? I did take two hotels um, or like a bed and breakfast, but um, the first night I camped the first night in the tent and uh, it was a torrential downpour, but I was bone dry. I have a fantastic tent, but I just, I, did, I didn't sleep well at all. I like, I was exhausted the next day. I think I only drove like two or 300 kilometers. That's when you decided to, to check into the hotel. Yeah, bed and breakfast the next night. Like, <laughs> I needed some sleep. You're thinking this camping but, shit? <laughs> I'm well, I, I, uh, I find when I haven't camped in a while, yeah. the first night or two, it's rough. 
I just don't sleep well. And yeah. you know, a couple nights into it, I sleep as well as I would in the bed. Yeah. yeah. I haven't camped in over 15 years. I, I'm, more along, I'm more aligned these days with the Justin's philosophy of five-star hotel. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll camp, but there has to be a five-star hotel, hotel. <laughs> right over there. And then, uh, then I feel safe to, to camp for 45 to 50 minutes until it's time for my massage. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Nepal a few years ago, and uh, maybe it wouldn't be for you, Justin. I was, I was uh, hiking and climbing for a month in the, in the mountains there, and we were, well, two to three week walk from the nearest five-star hotel. <laughs> I mean, I can do uh, mountain climbing and uh, yeah. and all that stuff. I, the only thing that that I need is five star hotel, which is right over there. So the two three walk, two three uh, two or three week walk from the, that that's a little too far. Yeah, but that's how you got to do it in, in that area, though. You know, it, it's uh, it's like um, um, I was very interested in K two um, for a while and um, and the the walk to that mountain is like that would be enough for me i i would be like that that's this isn't that that's too much because it's it's just it's all it's in there you know there's there's no just like city next to it yep yeah K2, that's a dangerous mountain yeah that's why i was interested in it yeah do you ever have any aspirations to climb it or just walk to it just walk to it, I guess. Look at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Piss in front of it and go home. <laughs> the, I mean, the walk to it has killed people, so it's it is it, it is no joke. Yeah, I think I think it's possible more people died walking to K two than have died on Mount Everest. Really, um, there's there's some strange statistics with K2, and it's very it is one of the most da more dangerous, most dangerous mountains because of its remoteness. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So, Aaron, um, thanks for being part of uh, the spiritual hustle experience, uh, and we hope that uh, you can come back uh, for another talk sometime. Um, it could be. In the dead of winter <laughs> when, when you want you know when you want to have another chat about spiritual involvement and uh, you're not quite finding it in the rural community in new brunswick we can have you back on awesome. yeah definitely great that opportunity well thanks for your time we really appreciate it um it's been fun you're welcome and thanks again guys all right man take care yeah nice talking to you see ya